Good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Hill. We're going to continue on our series in Matthew's Gospel, but I want to start with the question that's kind of raised by that video, uh, which is your preferred Jesus? Which is your preferred Jesus? How do you like to picture Jesus? Uh, do you like baby Jesus, uh, like we saw in Talladega Nights? Do you like bearded Jesus, blonde Jesus, broken Jesus, brother Jesus, buddy Jesus, or boss Jesus? Now, as silly as that clip was, I think we all fall into this trap of domesticating Jesus. And what I mean is we take Jesus and we reshape him for how we want him to be. We recast him in a mould that meets our needs in a way that measures up to our expectations. And when we do this, what we end up doing is we do what uh, uh, that guy in the video did, which is just we simply shape Jesus... Uh, I like to party, so I want my Jesus to party. We reshape Jesus into a reflection of ourselves. And so Jesus only approves of the things that we do, and he starts to condemn those things that we don't do and the, and the, the people that we find difficult. And the, the Jesus that we reshape in our image, this domesticated Jesus we create for ourselves, he never does or says anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, that might need, mean that we need to change, that might mean that we need to do something differently. But in today's passage in Matthew chapter 11, it'd be great if you can have it open, we see that Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus will not be domesticated. He will not bow down to our expectations. But instead, the Jesus of the Bible, He recasts our vision and He resets our hopes and our futures in line with His will and His priorities. I know where we are is in uh, we're Matthew chapter 11, uh, and Jesus, he's just in the previous chapter commissioned the, go- the apostles to go out to, to go out and gather up the lost sheep of Israel. And you might remember the sobering words that he sent them off with. They were, they were going out to be opposed and rejected. They were going to meet division and hostility. Uh, chapter 10, verse 16 says, I'm, Jesus says to his, his apostles, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore as be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And it wasn't just from the kind of Roman rulers, it was their own uh, Jewish leaders, their religious rulers, who would violently oppose the message of Jesus as well. Uh, chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, Be on your guard, you'll be handed over to the local councils to be flogged. Where? In the synagogues. And so as Jesus sends his apostles out, things are looking pretty bleak. And I guess some people are starting to question their expectations. If Jesus is the Messiah, the long-promised Saviour King, then He's certainly not coming in the form that they had expected. Jesus seems to be working off a a different job description to the one that they think He ought to have, to the one that they have written for Him. And it's not just the religious leaders uh, who are opposing Jesus that think He's not fitting the bill of the Messiah. John the Baptist himself, the one who baptised Jesus in the Jordan River, the one who is there to prepare the way for Jesus, the one who was calling for people to repent for the Kingdom of Heaven had come near, even John is starting to wonder. And so John sends his messengers to Jesus to find out what is going on. And take a look there in chapter 11, verse 2. It'd be great if you have your Bible open. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 2. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his own disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? 
Now, I don't think John is completely uh, uh, kind of lost on Jesus. I think he's just seeking more assurance from Jesus that this is the way that things ought to be. He's seeking assurance because Jesus isn't kind of fitting his own expectations of the Messiah. Uh, if you've got the Bible there, flick back a few pages uh, to uh, chapter 3, it's on page 784, and see this, uh, page 784 or 785, in verse 11 of chapter 3, we hear John's own words about what he expected the Messiah to do. Chapter 3, verse 11, John says this, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, what's John expecting the Messiah to do when he comes? Well, he's expecting the Messiah to come and bring powerful judgment. And so John is preparing the people for this judgment. He's, he's preparing them by baptizing them as a sign of repentance, as a sign of turning away from sin and turning back to God. But John is expecting real and imminent judgment to come with the Messiah. The image of the winnowing fork is a, is a, is a separating judgment that, that, that the Messiah will come and he will separate uh, the wheat from the chaff. He'll cleanse the house of Israel. And so far, this is not what John has seen. Jesus' ministry is not taking the shape that John expected. John, the herald of the Messiah, well, where is he at the moment? He's in prison. And Jesus' followers are being sent out, and they're not being sent out like conquering generals under a victorious king, they're being sent out as sheep among wolves. And Jesus himself was hanging out with all the wrong people, with sinners and tax collectors and the unclean, and, and Jesus has been rejected by the leadership, by the upright and moral religious elites the leaders of God's people have just accused Jesus of being a, uh, possessed by a demon. And so we maybe kind of understandably with John ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? But Jesus assures John, Jesus says to John, and he says to us as well, hear what I have said and look what I have done. Uh, chapter 11, verse 4, uh, Jesus replied, chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus replied, go back, to, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's taking John's disciples and he takes them on a quick tour of the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. There's about four different references to Isaiah that Jesus picks up in those few short sentences, but essentially what Jesus is doing is He's taking them to Isaiah's job description of the Messiah. And He's saying, look, I'm completely fulfilling the role. I'm doing what Isaiah said would be done. In Isaiah 35, we read this, and it should come up on the screen if we're lucky. In Isaiah 35, we read this, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, there, then, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. See, what Jesus is doing is He's saying, 
look at what I have done. Look at what I've done. It matches the job description of, the, of God's coming Savior, the healing, the cleansing, the preaching. That's what I've been doing, says Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to John, I am the Messiah. I'm walking the walk. I'm talking the talk. But things may not be taking the same shape that you expected. See, John expected judgment. And it seems that Jesus has come with mercy. John expected fire and brimstone, but Jesus has come with compassion and healing. Now, now John is not completely wrong. Jesus is not going to be a pushover. Judgment is coming for those who reject God's Messiah. What was the first part of that job description? Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come, but to save you. And what did John tell his apostles back in chapter 10? If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You see, Jesus is no pushover. Judgment is coming for those who reject God's Messiah, but the description of the Messiah is judgment and mercy. It is divine retribution and compassion. And as we see in verse 7, this conversation, uh, it takes place Uh, not just between Jesus and John's disciples, but it takes place before a watching crowd. Uh, Verse 7 says this, As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Uh, Now, so the the, the spotlight in the passage, it moves from Jesus to John, but as as we'll see, uh, Jesus' words about John, they'll only go further to confirm his own identity, Jesus' own identity as the promised Messiah. Have a look at verse 7 with me again. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Now what Jesus does in this section is he paints a portrait of John for us, and he he does it in three parts. Uh, The first part is that John is the promised Messiah. He is the one promised by the the prophet Malachi. Uh, And that quote there, it comes, uh, that quote there promises that a messenger will come, and that messenger will come and prepare the way for God's own coming to save his people. And Jesus is saying, John is that messenger. The second thing in the portrait is that uh, Jesus is saying that John is the greatest and last of the prophets of the old covenant. Uh, have a look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then verse 13, for all the law and the prophets, sorry, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You see, Jesus is saying that John is the greatest and the last of the old covenant prophets. And he points forward to the one who will usher in a new covenant, a time where God will come in judgment and mercy. And John is pointing forward to Jesus, the last prophet before Jesus. And the third part of the portrait is that John is the promised prophet Elijah. Uh, Verse 14, uh, Jesus is still speaking to the crowds here and he says this about John. Verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah 
who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now again, Jesus is pointing us back to the prophet Malachi, and Malachi promised in the very last verses of the Old Testament, a prophet like Elijah would come. A prophet like Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Now, Elijah, he's kind of this enigmatic Old Testament prophet who, according to two kings, didn't die, but was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And that's kind of a sign that Elijah's ministry uh, wasn't complete. Uh, And later on in the Gospels, when Jesus is transfigured, uh, it'll be Moses and Elijah there with Jesus, these two towers of the Old Testament, affirming him as God's Messiah. And Jesus is saying, uh, as he completes his portrait of John, that the promised Elijah figure, the one promised to prepare the way of the Lord, the one promised by the prophet Malachi is John. And with these three parts, John, the promised messenger preparing the way, John, the last and greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, John, the promised Elijah, he's painting John as the one who came to prepare the way of the Lord, the one who came to make straight paths before the Lord, the one who came as a messenger before God visited, before his Messiah came to reign and rule. So what does that mean about Jesus? If that's who John is, that means Jesus was the one, or Jesus is the one who was to come. You see, the picture of John, it not only sheds light on his identity, but it ultimately confirms for us Jesus' own identity. Jesus is the one to come. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised Saviour sent by God. Now, did you know that it's 152 days until the Tokyo Olympics? Uh, That's if it still happens with this uh, coronavirus. Um, I love the Olympics. I I particularly love uh, the the newspaper article uh, that comes out uh, in every Olympics uh, that shows the medals per capita. Uh, It's that moment where New Zealand's like, yes, we're somewhere near the top. Um, uh, The Olympics are great, uh, but one thing that I think is really lame about the Olympics is the torch relay that happens beforehand. Uh, it's, you know, that the torch relay is that event that takes place uh, and it kind of declares that the Olympic Games are about to begin, that the Olympic Games are near. And so uh, if you're watching the torch relay, the only time anyone really watches it in that moment in the opening ceremony where the torch is coming in and it's coming into the stadium. And as the torch comes into the stadium, you know that the Olympics are finally about to begin. The thing that you actually really care about is finally about to happen. And Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is like that final torchbearer in the, in the relay, that final torchbearer of the Old Testament prophets, of the Old Covenant, that will be renewed by the Messiah. And you'd be a fool to look at that torch relay and think that that is the Olympics itself. That is not the main event. But you'd be equally foolish to see the relay, to see the torch coming into the stadium and to not realise that things are about to begin, that spectacular things are about to happen. And Jesus is confirming John's place on, that cusp of his, on the cusp of history. And by doing that, he confirms his own place as the main event, as the Lord of all history, as the one who brings rescue and salvation for God's people. Uh, but the problem for the people who are watching there uh, in chapter 11 is uh, the religious leaders in the crowds, they have the wrong expectations. The one preparing the way for the Messiah has come. And what did they do with him? Well, he was in jail. And the Messiah is now here. And what are they doing with him? They say he has a demon. Ultimately, he'll be rejected and executed. And the reason they'll do that is because Jesus and John 
They don't fit their expectations. They don't fit what they want from a Messiah, from a Saviour. Take a look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children in the marketplace calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus, he's got this image of these kind of demanding children in a busy marketplace, and these children are there calling out to passers-by, calling out for them to kind of to bow to their demands, to follow their instructions. And then when the passers-by don't uh, dance or don't sing a dirge, they complain that they're not doing what they were asked to do. And so the crowd saw John, and they demanded, and, he, and John demanded from them repentance, that they stop sinning and that they turn back to God. But they wanted freedom. They wanted to keep playing and make merry. And so John is in prison for calling out a king on his sin. And then the crowds saw Jesus and he preaches good news and he gives hope to the lost and the suffering and he welcomes the outsider and the rejected. But they demanded that he bring judgment. They wanted him to come, come down hard on all those sinners, all those bad people out there, to deal with the wicked Gentiles who are ruling over them. And so neither John nor Jesus meet their expectations, and neither John nor Jesus are willing to change or conform to their expectations to fit in. The messenger has come, the Elijah, who has prepared the way for the Messiah. He has come, and it's the dawning of this new covenant, and he failed to measure up, so he has been rejected rotting in prison, about to lose his head for calling out sin and wickedness, for standing up for righteousness and calling for repentance. And now the Messiah has come, God's promised Saviour has come, the one who brings with him the kingdom of heaven, a new covenant, the one who is gathering for himself a new people of God, the one who has come to gather up the lost sheep of Israel, but the sheep refuse to recognise him. The crowds and religious leaders, they reject him because he refuses to to bend to their expectations. He comes with mercy before judgment. He comes to heal and to cleanse and to restore and to gather in the lost. He comes actually to condemn the religious elite and welcome in religious outcasts. And in doing so, Jesus is revealing what his kingdom is actually like, what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. And we we get a sneaky glimpse of it there in verse 11. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Truly I tell you, verse 11, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, and here it is, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what does Jesus' kingdom look like? Well, it's a kingdom of sacrifice, and it's a kingdom of humility, And it's through sacrifice and humility and making himself low, that that will be the path to greatness. Now, it's not hard to see that in that verse, Jesus actually, he's he's talking about himself. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is greater than John. And he is greater than John because he will make himself least in the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, Jesus will make himself least as he gives up his life, as he dies on a cross, as he takes the punishment for the guilty, even though he was innocent. 
And through this, through making himself the least, he surrenders his life and he secures victory for the kingdom of heaven. And this was not what they were expecting. This was not what people were telling Jesus he needed to do. No one was coercing Jesus into this. Rather than dictating to God's Messiah the shape of his salvation, the crowds were given another opportunity to get with his program. They were given another opportunity to to conform their expectations to his reality. And uh, it says this, He who has ears, let let them hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear, says Jesus. Do you have ears to hear? Do you run the risk of making the same mistake? Have you got the wrong expectations of Jesus? I think there's a few different ways this can play out for us. For some of us, we've simply domesticated Jesus. Uh, If an animal is domesticated, it's kind of here to serve the humans. It's here to live in a way that pleases the owners. Its behavior is to be predictable and routine. That's why we are cautious around wild animals, because we don't know how they'll react. We can't be sure that they'll do what we want. We're not sure that they'll be safe for us. And so with many of us, Jesus is here to be our servant. And we expect his behavior and his words to be predictable and to be routine and to be safe and to not say or do anything that's going to rock our boat. And in reality, what we've done is we've put Jesus on a leash. We've tamed him so that he never does or says anything that might upset us or make us feel uncomfortable. And sure, the domesticated Jesus that we've got, he he might get angry, just like you train your dog to bark at strangers over the fence, but he's only ever angry at people that you're angry with. And sure, the domesticated Jesus, he does care about sin, but it's never the sin in your life, it's the sin in other, other people's lives. He kind of gives you a little bit of license to go and point it out and shake your finger, or at least feel good on the inside about how well you're doing. And sure, the domesticated Jesus, he might say some difficult things from time to time, but it's only ever about issues that you feel are unimportant or unrelated to your life. And the domesticated Jesus, he makes us feel good. He's there when we need him. He's on our team. He's full of mercy and compassion and kindness to me and to people like me, but not to those who are unlike me. Is that you? Have you domesticated Jesus? I want you to think with me for a moment. When was the last time you read something that Jesus said and you were shocked? When was the last time you read something that Jesus said and you were upset or you were challenged? You read something that Jesus said and you were forced to rethink something and to change your mind, to change your expectations to His reality. Because that's what Jesus and his words do for us. Well, that's what they ought to do. You see, Jesus came not to meet our expectations, but to define what our expectations should be. Jesus came not to deliver us from uh, what we desire. He came not to deliver to us what we desire, but Jesus came to expose for us our deepest needs, our need to repent, our need for a saviour, our need for mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because Jesus has come, and he has come with God's agenda. He's come with God's agenda, not our agenda. 
He has come as God's Saviour. And so we need to get with His program rather than try and make Him get with ours. So do you need to let Jesus and His words out of the cage that you've put them in? Do you need to let them speak to you? Or have you downsized the greatness of Jesus? Have you downsized the greatness of Jesus to fit Him into your kingdom rather than you living in His? It's a challenge for those of us who've been at church for a while. Have you domesticated Jesus? Uh, The other mistake we can make uh, if we have wrong expectations of Jesus is that we can actually dismiss Him. Uh, We don't expect Jesus to be relevant for our lives. We don't expect Him to have anything to do with our situation, our hopes or our dreams. And we might be thinking, Jesus, He lived so long ago. His world was nothing like the world today. I mean, what does a carpenter from the first century have to do with me in the 21st century with my iPad and my iPhone? Why should I care about Him? Or we might think, what, what Jesus has said is, is, is confusing or it's strange or it's outdated. I can't imagine it having any significance for my life. Or we might think, we might look at uh, people in churches and people who follow Jesus and we might look at those people and say, those people are nothing like me. If the people who follow Jesus are nothing like me, he must only be for religious people who are not like me. So Jesus is not relevant for me. But if we hear these words of Jesus here in Matthew 11, if we, if we have ears to hear, as Jesus would say, then we'll see that Jesus is not just a, a, an added extra, He's not just on the periphery of history, but Jesus is the central figure of all history. Jesus is the one who opens up a new and everlasting covenant, a new way of relating to the God who made us. If we see Jesus here, then we see that He is the one who has come to deal with our deepest needs, the needs of sickness and evil and brokenness and death the needs of loneliness and being uh, cut off and, and, and broken relationships, our deepest need of being in right relationship with the God who made us and everything in this world. You see, Jesus is incredibly relevant. He came to fix our broken world. He came to meet our deepest needs. And so we can't just dismiss Jesus. He's as relevant as He has ever been. Uh, the author C.S. Lewis said that to meet the real Jesus, uh, if, you, if you really do meet the real Jesus, it will have extreme responses. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis said. Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects amongst those who met Jesus. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Uh, If you respond to Jesus with mild approval or mild disapproval, then you have not met the real Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us and the way that it transforms our expectations. Lord, we repent of dismissing Jesus, of thinking that He was irrelevant, that He has nothing to say to our life. And Lord, we also repent of domesticating Jesus, of shrinking Him down to our level, to making Him not much more than a 
a slave or a servant there to meet our needs. Lord, break down our wrong expectations of Jesus so we might see him as your Messiah, the one who has come to meet our deepest needs, the one who has come and brought a new covenant, which, meant that, which means that we can be in relationship with you so that we can be your people, so that we can be part of your kingdom of heaven. We pray these things in his name. Amen.